Welcome to the Unearthing Autism Podcast. I'm Jay Beard. And I'm Morgan Samal. This episode's all about what is autism. And um, I should have mentioned by now, we live in Orlando, Florida. Technically Winter Park, but uh, yeah, we're in Orlando, Florida. Um, we're going we're gonna to cover what, what isn't autism. And I'm going to give a brief definition of autism. We're going to talk about why autism exists and how it affects people. And we're going to go through the whole DSM criteria, which is like the medical definition of autism. And then uh, lastly, I want to touch on uh, my theory about the relationship between autism and ADHD. So about what, what I should say that nobody really knows what's going on with autism. It's a, always a kind of a developing theory. Um, but we know some things of uh, what uh, what autism is not. So um, so tell me, uh, Morgan, is is autism a, a male condition? Are you like the only female autistic in a hundred mile radius? No, but up until I think the DSM three, girls weren't included in the diagnosis of autism at all. So, like when they first started diagnosing autism there were no girls that were diagnosed, I think, until, like, 1980. And um, it seems to me, like, so the current statistics say that it's 4 to 1 in men, like, with that much more common mm. in men. It seems to me like it's uh, like it's either equal or damn near equal. So, um, girls just scoot by longer without being noticed. Yeah, that's what it is. And there's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy when the clinicians, when they define autism, in a w if they define autism as male autism, then it seems like uh, none of the females fit the criteria. Um, so yeah, basically, um, we're just debunking that idea. Um, uh, basically, it, it's, it very much is present in women, and we can have a whole episode sometime talking about those sort of differences. Um, autism is not ca caused by, by vaccines. It's not caused by Tylenol. Um, I like the explanation. Uh, autism is caused by sex. <laughs> when, uh, when autistic people have sex, they uh, create autistic babies. <laughs> so it's very much understood to be a, um, a genetic thing. And so my simple definition of autism is autism is a distinct variation among human genetics. Um, so it's, um, yeah, it's a particular uh, genetic makeup in uh, a certain group of people. Right now, it's considered to be about 2.2% of people are diagnosed with autism. And, um, and it's called autism spectrum disorder. And I figured um, I should mention what the whole spectrum thing means, because it, it seems to confuse a lot of people. How would, you, how would you think of what the autism spectrum is? So I think a lot of people, when they think of an autism spectrum in their mind, they think of like a line from like less autistic to the most autistic. But the spectrum isn't a line. It's more of like a circle with these different categories spouting off of the different criteria and traits for autism. And some people might have more deficits in one area and they have less deficits in another area, and then another person with autism could have the complete opposite but still be considered autistic because it just presents differently in different people, and different people have different deficits in different areas. 
Yeah, it's just about impossible to quantify it because autism isn't one trait. It's yeah. just and there's like a common saying that if you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. Exactly. It's, it's very heterogeneous. It's very different among the people that have it because it's basic. It's, um, it's, a, it's a group of people with a certain set of genetics. And um, so that means in any big group of human population, there's going to be a lot of variation. A quick little definition is um, we say the term neurotypical to talk about people that um, that don't have conditions like autism or ADHD or these uh, these genetic conditions, and so I wanted to explain that um, one of one of the problems with this whole s spectrum idea is that people get confused, and there's this common saying that people will say that is a common misconception. They'll say, "Well, uh, everyone's a little bit on the spectrum, right?" <laughs> And I want to explain, no, that is not the case. Either you have this specific set of autistic genes or you do not. And within that, there is a wide um, variation in how much it affects people. So why we can't quantify it, why we can't, we can't give people an autism number and say where people fit on the, on the spectrum like that, um, there is, of course, um, people with much higher support needs. Um, so... Support needs is kind of the politically correct term for, um, I also like to say a higher degree of autistic traits. Um, so we do know that um, people with a high degree of, of autistic traits end up needing a lot of support. They can be- I wouldn't even say necessarily a higher degree of traits, but a de uh, that their traits that they are more deficit in are the ones that make it more difficult to function in the society we live in because they might be like you know not lacking in a lot of areas but really be lacking in communication and being com like completely nonverbal but still be incredibly intellectual and they would be considered lower support because of that one big deficit that they have that stops them from being able to function in the world yeah yeah, so um, I wanted to give this analogy of, of the spectrum. So um, it's, uh, it's kind of like, uh, like drunkness. Um, so you can be more and less drunk, um, and it's going to affect everybody differently. But um, it doesn't mean that everyone is on the drunk spectrum. Um, and somebody might even be acting like they're drunk, or they might have traits of a <laughs> drunk person, but they're only drunk if they have drinking alcohol. And yeah. so the same thing with autism, maybe someone is very nerdy, but just because you're really nerdy and maybe you're introverted or whatever, doesn't mean you're autistic. You're only autistic if, um, if you have autistic genes, presumably from uh, parents or from your gene pool. I uh, like also the analogy of different, like people with autism, your brain works differently in the way that it's kind of like everybody else who like neurotypical people operate on windows and then autistic people operate on linux yes. so it's not that it's like a lesser thing or like uh like illness necessarily it's just like a whole different way of operating and it doesn't fit as well into our society as like the neurotypical way of operating but it's just like a completely different way that our brains operate absolutely yes so that that brings me to the sort of purpose for autism. Um, 
So they think that autism has been around for maybe at least 100,000 years. And so the question is, why has it stayed in the gene pool? Why has uh, evolution created such people and kept it going for so long? Um, and the basic reason, I would say, is to have people that think and perceive the world differently than other people. Because um, what you're describing is that peop autistic people can think differently. They very much uh, notice the details. Um, I myself, I know um, in the music world, like I see music uh, like this. And for some reason, I'm the first person to think of uh, seeing the music uh, so, so geometrically. And, um, and there's been a lot of autistic people throughout history that were big time innovators. And um, so yeah, if you can understand why, um, why having innovators and having people that think differently might be useful in a society, then you can understand what the sort of purpose of autism is. Yeah, and so the mechanism by which autism uh, makes people uh, think and perceive the world differently is largely from development. So it's considered a, a, developmental, a developmental disorder. Another way to think of it is that autistic people develop on a different sort of schedule than, uh, than neurotypical people. And, um, and they end up developing to have pronounced strengths and weaknesses. So, um, so for instance, I am gifted in music, and so for my brain to overdevelop in that area, it has to sort of under underdevelop in other areas. And the classic, a uh, very common area where autistic people kind of underdevelop is in um, is in communication and and social awareness, that sort of thing. Um, and so. There's a lot of stereotypes that autistic people are like math nerds, but in fact, um, autistic people can have strengths and weaknesses in a lot of different areas. Um, another, another way autism affects people is in their senses. Um, how would you describe this, the senses in, uh, in autistic people? Um, I think that our senses are a lot more connected with our nervous system than neurotypical people's senses are, where our senses can easily be over-understimulated, all of our senses. We could be like overstimulated by lights, or we could be understimulated by needing to have some kind of textile thing, a texture to feel. It's like all different senses it you could be overstimulated with things that you're eating that aren't the right texture or taste for you or you could be understimulated and be searching stimulation with taste and eating lots of sour foods and spicy foods so i think that our senses are just a lot more connected to our nervous systems and it sends our nervous system like out of whack when they're not being given the things we need to be regulated yeah, yeah, and you can imagine that having um, having strong, like having really sharp senses in some area could be uh, helpful. So for me, um, my sense of hearing is is my uh, my greatest strength and my greatest weakness. <laughs> it's a great strength because I can tell what the notes are. I can uh, really zero in on timbre really well. Um, I can tell what the chords are and everything. But I, um, I also can hear the, the clocks ticking really well. 
Um, and basically, I'm easily uh, bothered by sounds. Mm. And so I want to briefly talk about this really cool theory I came across called the sensory predictive coding theory. Sorry, the predictive coding theory. And it's more generally something that applies to all humans. And it's this theory of how we perceive the world. And the theory states that we don't just perceive the world through our senses. We perceive the world through our senses and through predictive models in our minds. Meaning that our minds um, kind of project. We perceive things according to how our mind predicts things based on limited information. So you can imagine we might have evolved so that if our foot is about to step on a, a cylindrical object that looks like a snake, we don't have to we don't have to look so so much in detail to say is that for sure a snake we've just learned that if we get a little bit of information that says it looks like a snake we should just assume it is a snake and we should react accordingly and um, so how this applies to autism is the theory goes that autistic people rely more on their sensory processing than their predictive models so a neurotypical person their predictive model might say the clock is ticking so that's not dangerous it's basically unimportant so we can just completely tune out the, the clicking the, the ticking clock and um, and so they just literally don't perceive the, tick, the ticking clock whereas someone like me um, for whatever reason that that predictive model is um, isn't so active in that area and so I rely on the on the senses more and so I, I'm very tuned into every little detail, even if it's uh, not important. And you can imagine that's a little bit annoying. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and it, it's also used to describe why autistic people use, um, do a lot of routines. It ends up being kind of a unified theory about autism. Um, I'll have to do a whole ep episode on it. I just, I just stumbled across, across it like a week ago. But it's, uh, it's really interesting. Um, so I'm hoping that we can go through the DSM criteria of autism. And again, so th the DSM is kind of the medical model of autism. Um, you can imagine there are certain people that have autism that have support needs. And so they, ha they have to have a list of criteria to say, okay, uh, you meet this criteria, you, are, um, you get th this much funding or this much support. Um, it's a recognized thing. And I want to kind of separate this idea of autism, autism the disorder versus autism as a sort of biological phenomenon. Um, so as we're, we're gonna go over the, the medical criteria to be considered a disorder. And, um, but there's kind of this idea of, I've heard Tony Atwood, this clinician say, this idea of subclinical autism where Maybe you have the autistic genes and you're autistic, but you, it's not affecting your life so much. Um, and of course, that's very subjective. Um, so basically what I'm trying to say is that autism is a biological phenomenon regardless of what people have been diagnosed with or whatever society's conception of autism was. As you described, maybe before the 80s, zero women were autistic. Yeah, and I think that like the conception of how much it affects your life is 
really hard to see from the outside because I was just saying to one of my clients the other day that like for my entire life every single day being autistic I've thought about being autistic but not in the words being autistic I've thought about every single day how it affects me and it's constantly a thing in my life every single day it's not like it affects me on some days and then like some days it's fine and it doesn't affect me like every single day of my life it's affected me and I didn't know what it was and somebody from the outside would say it's not affecting you because they don't know that that's what it is every single day affecting me inside because girls a lot that's why they tend to go undiagnosed is that it stays inside a lot mm-hmm. they're very good with masking and it's so funny because I have almost the opposite problem. My problem is um, I seem normal from my own perspective. Um, <laughs> but I would, um, you know, when I was trying to realize if I was autistic, I would, I would, I would be asking people, I was like, do you think I'm autistic? And I, I'd say, I seem to have all these autistic traits, but I don't know if I'm actually really socially different than other people. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, yeah, you're, uh, you're missing certain you cues. <laughs> <laughs> it's like if you have a, a social deficit, maybe you don't notice the times that you're not fitting in with the crowd, which is the, the case with me. Apparently other people noticed I had some social differences. Yeah, and for me a lot too, like with growing up and just like having friendships and stuff, like the there's one part in the diagnostic criteria that I'll get to about keeping relationships, but... I always thought that like my relationships with other kids my age were normal but at the same time I was never able to keep friends and like friends would just kind of like stop being my friend after a while and like I would never have like a best friend that would stay my best friend they'd always leave me and go be friends with somebody else or I wouldn't have like a core group of friends that I had that had like relationships like they do on TV like that and I've seen other gr- and people talk about having these friendships growing up and now being grown up and seeing that other people had those types of long-lasting friendships that I never had, now I can see from the outside and see like, wow, my relationships weren't that normal. And the way that I, another thing that's common in girls is to really obsess over people in the way that you really love one person and you want to be their friend and do everything with them, or you hate a person and you obsess over them being your enemy and I would have that too where there would be certain kids at school who in my mind like I would even at home I would to my mom and dad I would call them my enemy I'd be like oh my enemy did this today and I would constantly call them my enemy and think of them as my enemy and they had no idea but I would obsess over this thought that they're my enemy or that somebody else was my best friend but then that person in reality was like they probably had some plenty of other people they were closer with than me but they would be the one that would talk to me the only one that would talk to me so now from the outside I can see it's a little weird yes yes so um so yeah before you read the the DSM criteria I'll say that some of this is kind of more more made about the male autism and I've heard a lot of the female autistics will say that basically they they understand social social interactions quite well actually they don't miss things they they pick up on things very well because um yeah they they have a very high empathy um and so they they kind of go the opposite of some of these trends i guess one one thing i should say about autism is a lot of the the traits of autism are opposites and you'll see it in the dsm they'll say like um being hypersensitive or being hyposensitive um 
So just a big general trend you see within within autism is um, is opposing opposite extremes. characteristics, yeah. opposite extremes. Exactly. Um, a big a big one. I was talking about so a kind of objective way to tell if people are are autistic, um, regardless of what they say about what they feel and whatever, is the the whole development thing. And so it's very common for um, for aut especially autistic boys to not speak fast enough. Like to some of them won't speak until they're four or five. Or with me, it was that I learned to speak when I was two, like everyone else. But then I I stopped speaking when I was three, and then started speaking again. Um, and so. What, so what this has to do with extremes is that other autistic people will be speaking full sentences when they're one and a half. Um, so, so, uh, so some autistic people don't have such difficulties. And then in the speaking. way that it's different from girls, girls tend to have selective mutism where they'll be speaking and then the environment determines whether they're nonverbal or not. If mm. they're in an environment where they don't feel safe or where they're something is overstimulating them, then they can go nonverbal and be nonverbal for a period of time and then be verbal again. And that's much more common in girls. Yes. Yeah, I, I figure I, I should ask you, so I'll say for myself, maybe it's, uh, it's obvious to the people, to the listeners, that I have some difficulty speaking, um, you know, getting my words out. I have uh, great big thoughts, but forming them into words and getting them off just, just right is a, a bit of a challenge sometimes. Um, is it the same with you? You seem to speak very fluidly. I feel like I struggle with that too, though. I, really? I don't know. I think it comes from a lot of like rehearsing conversations beforehand. And that's, a, that's what a lot of people who mask do is they like go over conversations in their head so much ahead of time that when they're actually having the conversation, they don't seem as much like they're struggling because they're not having to come up with what they're saying in the moment as much because they thought about it and obsessed over it beforehand. Mm. Cool. So uh, can you start reading the criteria from the DSM? <coughs> the first area is in uh, what? Communication? Yep. Social communication and social interaction. So a person presents a per persistent deficits in social communication and social interaction across multiple contexts as manifested by the following currently or by history, um, deficits in social reciprocity ranging from, exam for example, from abnormal social approach and failure of normal back and forth conversation to reduced sharing of interests, emotions or effect or failure to initiate or respond to social interactions. Deficits in nonverbal communicative behaviors used for social interaction ranging, for example, from poorly integrated verbal and nonverbal communication to abnormalities in eye contact and body language or deficits in understanding and use of gestures to a total lack of facial expressions and nonverbal communication. So that was the, that was the first two you just read? Mm -hmm. So yeah, the first one was saying something like um, having one-sided conversations um, which I'll, I'll mention is very much a thing with ADHD, it seems. Um, it's, it's, so one big thing with autism is um, what we call a deficit in theory of mind, which has to do with um, how you, again, with the predictive model, it's like 
how I predict you are thinking and feeling and how you will react to things like other people. Um, so, so oftentimes autistic people are really into their special interests and maybe they, um, they have some deficit in how someone else is going to react to you just talking about the same thing for 10 minutes straight. Yeah. Like, uh, Morgan, I'm so excited about this Scriabin thing. I'm I'm sure you want to hear all about my, my niche interests, but, um, but there's not the voice they're saying like they probably don't want to hear all about this for so long exactly and one thing i'll mention that was that was mentioned in there is um it said currently or by history so maybe um and this is to say that autism is a disposition it's a genetic disposition that doesn't mean you can't improve in these areas so um so i was much more prone to one-sided conversations when i was younger and now I've made a very strong effort to not talk people's ear off and to really always consider what other people's interests are. And so I wouldn't say, oh, I'm not autistic. I'd, uh, I always uh, pay attention to other people's interests. The key is that um, I had the genetic disposition and I was like that when I was younger. It's a lifelong thing. And the second one you, you read, um, it mentioned things about eye contact. Um, and I like how it says something like, What's the word about eye contact? I li- yeah, I like that too. It says abnormalities in eye contact because it's not just a total lack of eye contact, which if I would have gone through my life with a total lack of eye contact, uh, it would have been so much less stressful. <laughs> but like we often force eye contact to keep that like normal social thing going. So for me, when I'm having conversations, I'm never completely making eye contact but I've taught myself to throw it in there, basically. So I usually look off to like the corner and then I start, and, and that's how I'm able mostly to focus on what somebody else is saying to me is if I'm just zoning into like a certain space, not really looking at anything, but basically looking at what they're saying to me in my mind. But when I'm looking at their m- face, I'm thinking more about their face and my face and them looking at my face and what my face looks like. And I get overthinking about that. So I can't focus on what they're saying. Or I tend to look at people's mouths because the words are coming from the mouth. And so logically, in my mind, I feel like if I'm going to be looking anywhere on your face when you're speaking to me, <laughs> it's your mouth because that's where the information is coming from. So I do tend to like throw the eye contact in there. So it's not just no eye contact. It's definitely like an abnormal form of eye contact of going from over here to your mouth to your eyes for a second, and it's abnormal. <laughs> yes, and uh, I want to say that um, it's a bit of a stereotype that autistics don't make eye contact, and it is too much of a stereotype. Plenty of autistics make eye contact, and so and it's funny to talk about the, the opposites thing again. I am the opposite of what you just described, where – um, me and my dad make too much eye contact. Um, so uh, I've been told I have an intense gaze because I, I was told once, um, basically I've never known where to look with eye contact. And so someone told me, I was like going into an interview. They said, you got to seem confident. You got to make a lot of eye contact. So basically I just learned to just stare people down. Just so never look away from the eyes. you literal and went with it forever. Yeah. yeah. And so I have to train myself to look away sometimes. And you have to train yourself to That's look at funny, the eyes. Because for me, it's and somebody else had put it this way, that I just thought was perfect of saying it's like staring into the sun, where it's like I can only look at somebody's eyes for so long, 
where it feels like I'm staring into the sun and I just have to like look away <laughs> for a second because it's so intense. Yes, that's a great metaphor. Cool. So <laughs> let's read them one at a time. What's the next one? Okay. Uh, deficits in developing, maintaining, and understanding relationships ranging from, for example, from difficulties adjusting behavior to suit various social contexts to difficulties in sharing imaginative play or in making friends or absence of interest in peers. Yeah, and that's kind of what you described earlier, right, about... Yeah, so like with children, it could tend to be like with the sharing, like difficulties sharing an imaginative play, if with children with autism who tend to take things more literally, when other kids are playing pretend, they might not like really get the whole idea of playing pretend or know what what's pretend and what's not pretend and um and that could cause kids to not really want to play with them because they don't get it they don't just get how to be like everybody else and play like everybody else and then it can also be that they yep that they just want to be by themselves because they're only interested in what they are doing and what they're interested in and why why would they want to play with these other kids who aren't even interested in the same thing so they just don't even care about the other kids they're playing with them so yes cool is that the end in that section um oh and then the i thought that the difficulties adjusting behavior to suit various social contexts was interesting because for me it was like it was much a difficulty adjusting my behavior for where i was where i would be at home and when I was at home by myself, and I've, this is like an always thing through my life, when I'm at home by myself, my behavior seems completely normal to me and comfortable and whatever. But then when I put myself in a social situation, I have a lot of trouble trying to figure out how do I behave in this situation, what's acceptable and what's not to say, and how should I be presenting right now, what should my posture be like right now, <laughs> like are people looking at me and thinking something I'm doing is weird? Like I'm because with girls, we're constantly through our lives. If we've been undiagnosed, we're constantly masking because we think there's something else wrong, which is us just thinking like pretty ableist about like an ableist view about autism, thinking it's something that it isn't and thinking that you don't want to associate yourself with that. So just thinking there's something else, but I also got to hide whatever that is and just always being in the mindset of having to hide it and having to fit in and be normal. What that makes me think is some of these social deficits are in fact kind of differences. And so when autistic people hang out with other autistic people, suddenly they don't have so many social deficits. They can be weird together. And they can um, they can engage in their special interests uh, really hard and um, so yeah there's a some subject sub subjectivity to it all it's like uh, why should everyone conform all the time is that yeah. really a problem <laughs> yeah once you're around other people who are neurotypical then it's like then you realize for the first time that you can actually make friends with people and not have to worry so much about what's normal and what's not normal because everybody else just they're worried about that too and nobody else wants anybody to worry about it so yes cool so the next section uh, what's the next section um there's two main sections restricted restricted beheaded restricted <laughs> repetitive patterns of behavior interests or activities as manifested by at least two of the following currently or by history 
Um, so there's that's a large section. Four of them. So stereotyped or repetitive motor movements, use of objects or speech, e.g. simple motor stereotypes, lining up toys or flipping objects, echolalia, idiosyncratic phrases. Yes, so uh, while you're reading that, you're rocking back and forth, right? Yep. (laughs) Repetitive behavior. Um, that That's one of my biggest repetitive behaviors is yes. constantly rocking back and, and forth. Mine is something like this, playing drums. Cool, what's the next one? Uh, insistence on sameness, inflexible adherence to routines, or ritualized patterns of verbal or nonverbal behavior, e.g. extreme distress at small changes, difficulties with transitions, rigid thinking patterns, greeting rituals, needing to take same route or eat same food every day yes we so there's a few of those that yeah we already <laughs> talked about eating the same food every day um yeah so it, autistic people love routine i feel like some of that language is um talking about um people with high support needs it's when we don't get our our routine i i don't have a meltdown when i don't have my routine but i don't like i don't if I if I can't have oatmeal in the morning, uh, that that does suck. And so when I stay at my parents' place, I'm just kind of like, hmm, I don't have my routines. What am I supposed to do? This is just not ideal. It's uh, time for me to get home. <laughs> for me, it's not as much the stereotype of having to have a daily routine of doing the exact same morning routine and things like that every day, like getting up and doing this and having my breakfast with this and and going here and blah blah blah, like. It's not as much like that. It's more like I make a plan for the day and I make a plan like with my family for the day and we're going to do this today and then all of a sudden the plans are changing and now we're not able to do this thing and now we're going to be doing something else and that can send me like I that can make me just start crying because of the uncomfiness that I feel so strongly for having the plan change. And then um what was the other one? Oh, transitions. Transitions are also a really common one where it's also things like autistic people oftentimes like won't want to take a shower because you're having to transition from being out in the air to being wet and being in the warmth to then having to transition from being in the warmth to being out in the cold of like not being in the warm water anymore. Now you're having to transition from being like warm and wet to like cold and then dry and those are a lot of transitions to go through really quickly, and that can cause a lot of uncomfort. And then uh, greetings, <laughs> greeting rituals. Yeah, the greeting rituals is kind of, it's not even uh, necessarily greetings, but things like um, like when someone says, thank you, or no, when somebody says, I'm sorry, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I always say, you're good. And I cannot get myself out of saying you're good. I can I don't I don't know what else to say in the moment. Every single time, I even try to like challenge myself sometimes <laughs> to say something else, but it just comes out every single time. I have to say you're good. Yes, <laughs> it's it's scripted. Yeah, it's just like a really pre-made script that now I can't change All anymore. Right. Yeah. Cool. What's the next thing? Um. Highly restricted, fixated interests that are abnormal in ed- intensity or focus, e.g. strong attachment to or preoccupi- pre- 
preoccupation with unusual objects is excessively circumscribed or per persevere perseverative interests yeah yeah um i definitely i definitely fit that um so special interests yeah having special interests that you're obsessed with for a while and some of mine are pretty niche like uh like musical set theory and um, it's funny, I didn't know they said unusual objects because um, I was obsessed with Rubik's Cubes when I was a kid. I, like, so I can funny. do a seven My by seven. My son is really starting to get interested in Rubik's Cubes. So nice. I'm excited to see where he goes with that, how far yes. he gets into it. I've heard other autistic people say that their interests, um, I've heard that they're kind of a jack of all trades, that they, they get obsessed with this, but it only lasts for two weeks, and then another big interest. Um, I have interests like that. I have long-term interests that last over years and years or my whole life. And then I have some interests that like I'll get really into for a few weeks. And then it's kind of like once I've learned everything there is to learn about that thing, then I kind of like store it away in my brain and move to the next thing that I can learn everything there is to learn about. And Um, and part of that is not liking things, being really bored with things you're not interested in. Yeah. So, um, so, and that's what can be hard about um, socializing with the with a general crowd of people. Maybe they want to talk about cars or they want to talk about fashion. I cannot do those topics. It's just so incredibly boring. I want nothing to do with it. <laughs> uh, and another uh, part is that girls tend to be more um, have like they they tend to have people as their special interests more often. So it could be like somebody that you know that you want that person to be your best friend and you like kind of obsess over them being your best friend, which I kind of had some growing up. And then also with artists, like music artists, it's like you tend to have like a, a specific band or music artist that you're, is your special interest and you learn everything about that person and all of their music and what all their music is about and their whole biography. And for me, that's Fiona Apple. Nice, nice. Cool. What's the next one? Um, Hyper or hypoactivity to sensory input or unusual interest in sensory aspects of the environment, e.g. apparent indifference to pain or temperature, adverse response to specific sounds or textures, excessive smelling or touching of objects, visual fascination with lights or movements. Yeah, so this is talking about the sensory sensitivities. Mm-hmm. And, and obsessions, which my boyfriend Logan, he also suspects that he has autism and he has a very big fascination with lights. He's wow. got all these different colored lights in his room and he can change the different colors of the different lights. And he's, al- and he's always changing the different settings and obsessed with like finding new settings for different moods and stuff. So it's like a big fascination with the lights and the different colors of the lights. Wow. It's so interesting how it can affect um, it can affect all the senses a little bit, and then sometimes there'll be a one sense that is particularly pronounced. For me, it's the the hearing um, is really sticks out with me. But yeah, I also I, I don't like the bright lights. Um, we already talked about the the taste sensitivity. Um, what about like squishmallows? You like squishmallows? I don't really care about that. So the funny, because so many auti- like autistic people this. are obsessed with squishmallows. And at first, I didn't before I had ever touched a squishmallow, I was like, whatever. But then when I touched one, I was like, oh, I get it. <laughs> I want to touch this forever, because it's like 
whenever I was growing up and my mom and me would go to the store together and there would be like those things in the middle of the aisle with like a bunch of like soft pillows in there I would stand there forever touching the soft pillows and not be able to like walk away from it and it's basically like another version of that but like I've always wanted to just sit and touch and now we're adults and now we can buy our own squishy (laughs) things to be able to sit and play with and touch forever and it feels so nice and a neurotypical person would see that and be like why are you playing with a stuffed animal yeah basically squish mellows are how would you describe what it is it's like a little pillow slash stuffed animal that's just like really soft and nice and squishy and it's kind of like squishy in a special way where when you squish it you don't really feel like your fingers touching together when you squish it it's just all squish and it's such a satisfying squish nice (laughs) for me the sensory sensitivity with the tactile it ends up meaning that i cut all the tags off my shirts for sure Mm -hmm. and um and then i also like wearing comfortable clothes all the time and um yeah i hate yeah we tend to buy things based more on comfort than on style and how things feel we cut the tags out of our shirts and pants usually because they're just like way more bothersome for us than other people cool so what are the last little things on kind of the fine print of the dsm symptoms must be present in the early developmental period but may not become fully manifest until social demands exceed limited capabilities or may be masked by learned strategies later in life And I've been thinking about this a lot lately because I feel like I'm at a point in my life where the social demands are exceeding my limited capabilities for the first time and I'm having to learn how to work around that and work through things because I, for most of my life, was a child and so I had adults doing every, all the important things for me that I couldn't do and now, and then I was married and so my ex-husband was the one who took care of things and paid the bills and did the the grown-up things the adult things and I've never been completely financially on my own and been in charge of the house and been having to make sure the laundry is done and the dishes are done and all those things are done because when we were married most of the time he did those things at home for the most part and I would go to work where I would be doing my special interests all day long and I have always found ways to work around my deficits and things that are harder for me to do. And now for the first time, I'm having to do things like make appointments by myself and pay bills by myself and have social interactions that I didn't really have to have before. And so those things are becoming more apparent now. And I think that that's why in the last few years of my life, as I'm getting into my second half of my 20s now I'm 26 is the first time where I'm really having to do a lot of those things by myself and the fact that I'm doing those by myself now is where it's becoming apparent that I'm having trouble with those things and that I never really had to deal with them before yeah yeah a lot of people's challenges come uh, come later in life and that kind of leads us to uh, what's uh, what's the next thing it says uh, symptoms cause clinically significant impairment in social occupational or other important areas of current functioning and that's another thing that I feel like I've never been able to I don't think if I wasn't a hairstylist I would be able to like 
just have a job, a regular old job where I go and I'd be in an office all day or something else that I'm not highly interested in because it would it would definitely cause problems occupationally for me if it wasn't something that I was really interested in. Yeah. And um, so basically in that in that little bit they're saying the your autistic traits have to cause you some problems in your work or your social circle. And um, that's why it's kind of important to separate autism, the, the diagnosis or the disorder from autism objectively, the genes, you know, because um, there will be people that, um, that overcome some of these challenges. And it's really just kind of subjective if it's, um, if it's causing you these, these problems in those areas. I think it could be causing anybody with autism those problems if they're forced into being in a position occupationally in a position in life that they're not comfortable being in. If you really have to conform. Exactly. Like I think if we have to completely conform then a lot of us are going to have a lot more problems and um, significant impairments but we're able to find ways to use our strengths to work around those things and be able to thrive yes cool so last i wanted to mention kind of um my out on a limb theory about adhd and autism basically i think that adhd is um is maybe even the same sort of thing as as a as autism just sort of the other side of it sort of the opposing side of it and um I think at least the conditions are way more related to each other than we previously thought. And so part of what supports this is that there's a huge overlap of people with autism and ADHD. Morgan, Morgan's an example. Um, and so it's something roughly around 60 to 80% of autistics are also diagnosed with ADHD. And something around 25% of people with ADHD are diagnosed with autism. ADHD is basically just more common. Um, and you've got to wonder if um, some of that is basically there's less stigma around ADHD. There's some, but yeah. um, basically people are more willing to admit that they have ADHD than to, uh, to give themselves the autism label. Um, another thing that makes the condition seem really related is that the, the traits of ADHD are very, very similar to autism in a lot of areas. So ADHD is also developmental disorder. And, um, and so we talked about the one-sided conversations, you know, the ADHD people, they have all this energy and um, yeah, they end up having one-sided conversations. They can sometimes have sensory differences. They can, um, they definitely have emotional differences that, that seem similar to autistics. I have kind of like a slightly different theory that I think that, there is a lot of overlap between autism and ADHD, and I think that a lot, too, of people who have ADHD don't know that they have autism, and uh, they attribute things that they, they think are ADHD that really are autism, but I think that both of them are really um, related to the nervous system like completely controls our nervous system in a way. And I think that there's, that that's why they, why a lot of the things overlap and a lot of the traits overlap is because it's controlled by our nervous systems. And 
And then I think that there's a lot of people with ADHD who have undiagnosed autism. Yeah. Yeah. So it, the trend seems to be that ADHD people are understimulated, which makes them sensory seeking. And autistic people are often overstimulated, and so they're very sensory avoiding. But um, I feel like I'm pretty balanced in sensory seeking and avoiding. Yeah, and of course you have both. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, um, we know that it's actually quite complicated, and that we have some areas where the where we're understimulated, some areas where we're overstimulated. It's just a big hodgepodge of these different of these different elements mm -hmm. going on. And so it's almost splitting hairs to say that someone's one or the other. A lot of people, when they think of autism, they think of people with intellectual disabilities. Mm -hmm. And part of this has to do with the, the mix-up between these terms. The, a lot of the people with low support needs, they were diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome, which is the same thing as autism, just with lower support needs. And so, um, so, pe so therefore, it was only the people with the, s the most support needs that would be considered autistic and so now we've changed it so that everybody has the autism label so um, they changed the the definition of of the word and most people haven't caught up with it so it's kind of funny most people uh, think of autism they think of intellectual disability when in fact um, I've read that people uh, people with with um, that were diagnosed uh, with Asperger's with uh, with low support needs that they tend to have um, a higher IQ than the neurotypical population, something like uh, 104. And we know that a lot of the, the big geniuses through, uh, through history, like Einstein, Nikola Tesla, um, people like that, um, they, were, uh, they were autistic. What should our routine be for closing this out? I don't know. Uh, you like high fives? What did fives? we do last time? Yeah, we did a high five. Oh, yeah, okay. Good stuff, Morgan. High five. <laughs>